You might remember that a month ago I baptised our grandson Jude. And after the baptism, we had some relatives and friends come back to the manse for a bit of a party. The problem was that we hadn't realised that one of the small children there, and there were lots of children there, had been at another party the day before where one of the children had the norovirus. And so about a third of the people who were at our baptism party caught the norovirus. And one of them was Tony Miles, my colleague, and one of them was me. And we were able to send each other touching messages as to how often we'd been sick. (laughs) We were both in bed with our respective wives who'd also got it. And were both also ill. And so we kept asking how each other was doing and whether the other ones had stopped having diarrhoea. It was all absolutely lovely. (laughs) You see, Tony and I were bonded together in sickness. (laughs) Whereas I have to say that Tina here was in the out crowd. She was revoltingly well. The only text messages that we sent her were messages saying, Tina, can you please chair this meeting? Can you please speak on this occasion? And of course, what was even more frustrating was that she did everything amazingly well. Very annoying. Well, that's a funny sort of in-crowd, being ill. But an in-crowd, it certainly was. A couple of weeks ago, we went for a ride on the steam railway in the Cotswolds. On this steam railway, there are just two paid staff and 3,000 volunteers. And they're all passionate about steam and passionate about what they do. But without their passion, they wouldn't be in the in crowd. I could spend all morning listing various sorts of in crowd. To be in an old girls or an old boys association, you have to have been to a particular school. To be in a sports team, you have to play that particular sport. To be in one of the clubs up the back here in Pall Mall, you have to be not only wealthy, but nominated by a couple of the other members. To be in the British Legion, you've got to have been in one of the armed forces. I expect that you are in an in-crowd or two as well. The national group you belong to, the fellowship group that you go to, the friendship group that sits together. Now, there's nothing at all wrong with that. We all need to belong to a whole variety of different organisations in a whole variety of different ways. Belonging to an in-crowd gives us security. And many good things. But there are also in-crowds that are far more negative. At a personal level, we think of the schoolgirl who wears different clothes because her parents cannot afford the latest fashion, and she's bullied because of it. On a far wider scale, we think of the mafia in Italy and Europe, the triads in China and the Far East. 
Historically, we think of the Ku Klux Klan in the United States and the religious bigotry they represented and the fear that they brought. We think of the horrific violence with a tribal or a religious base that has torn and still tears so many nations apart. These in-crowds are agents of evil and bring nothing but violence and injustice and pain and fear. In today's Bible reading from Acts chapter 10, we see a man struggling to understand which in-crowd was the right one. As Peter is confronted with what to him was an absolutely amazing insight. That what he thought was the in-crowd was in fact the out-crowd. And what he thought was the out-crowd was in fact the in-crowd. But let's first set the scene and have a look at the story. The passage starts with someone who is definitely in the out crowd. A man called Cornelius, verse 1 here. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He was in the in crowd for two reasons. First of all, he was Italian and not a Jew. Secondly, he was part of the hated army of occupation. He was a Roman centurion. But we discover in verse 2 that he was also a man who was seeking after the reality of God. Verse 2 here, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. If you were here a few weeks ago, we were looking at the Ethiopian eunuch as we worked our way through Acts, and we saw there a man who was fed up with all the gods and wanted to know the one true God, a God not made with hands, a real God who was the source of all being. Perhaps Cornelius was like that Ethiopian eunuch, a man longing to know God, a man open to what God might do in his life. But he is still amazed and terrified when he actually encounters God. Verses 3 and 4 here. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He said. Well, the angel tells him that because of his prayers, and because he's backed up those prayers with generosity to the poor, God has chosen to reveal himself to him. Now, I have to say, I'm a bit cynical about visions. Too often, if I'm at a meeting and someone stands up and says they've got a word from the Lord or they've got a vision, it's something vague and you haven't got a clue what it's about or why it's been given. There's often a waterfall or a river or a tower. And it's lovely to hear from God, but it doesn't seem to be much help. I like a vision like Cornelius's, a specific 
dream, a specific vision. To give you an example, I'm sorry to bore you if you've heard it before, but before I came here, I worked as a minister in Hertfordshire, and Biddy was working, Biddy, my wife, was working as a hospice nurse. And she had a patient who, through a neurological condition, could not speak, couldn't move. All she could do was to move her eyes. And if she wanted to communicate, uh, the nurses had a board with the alphabet, and she could blink at the appropriate time. It was a slow process, and gradually they'd work out exactly what she wanted to say. And one day when Biddy came in, she blinked and blinked, and she was obviously excited about something. And eventually she was able to tell Biddy that she felt she had a word from God. She'd never had a word from God before. She was very excited. And it took weeks or several incidences before a a period of time before she could actually spell it out because it all took so long. And what she said was, and she didn't know me at all, she said I was going to be moved from the shadow to the spotlight, that we'd be moving to London, and that we'd be living in Docklands. Now I wasn't due to move, but just a few weeks later I was in a fellowship group meeting and my chair of district phoned up and said, you're going to Westminster, in the spotlight, in London. When we got to the manse, it wasn't in Docklands, but it was by a wharf, and our address is Plantation Wharf. And there were many other things, it's not enough time to go into it, that were very specific about what she said and about what others said. That is the sort of specific vision, specific dream that doesn't come along very often. But when it does come, it really shows you that God is at work in your life. And this vision of Cornelius was just as specific. If you look at verses 4 to 6, you discover it involves a particular landlord a particular man living in a particular house in a particular place. No wonder Cornelius the centurion took note of it and sent some of his most trusted staff off to greet this man and to collect. Well, it was Peter, we know that. But Peter had a vision as well. We read about that in verses 9 to 23. Peter falls into a trance and has a dream. And three times in this dream, he's offered food which is unclean for the Jew. And then even before he's had time to work out what that's about, the messengers from Cornelius arrive. And Peter by now has worked out that God is in all this. And so off he goes to meet Cornelius. In the next few verses, we discover the excitement of Cornelius as to what's happening. And Peter responds and says that he believes God's in this. And then what does he do? What does Peter always do when he's given an opportunity? He starts to preach a sermon. It's here in verses 34 to 43. 
And this next part, uh, I think, is really quite amusing. Verses 44 to 46. Because Peter was no doubt a very good preacher, but he didn't get a chance to finish his sermon. He didn't get a chance to explain much. He didn't get a chance to build up to an evangelistic appeal. He didn't get the chance because the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came upon them all. Verse 44 here. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Do you know, I can preach the very best sermon in London, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't move, I'm just a windbag. And I can preach a dreadful sermon, and sometimes I do preach dreadful sermons, I know. But if the Holy Spirit comes, it's fine. The congregation will hear. And that's why not just Peter, but also the rather legalistic Jewish converts who were with him, gave way and said, we can't have a Christian out crowd. All we can have as Christian people is an in crowd. For all need to be saved. All can be saved. All can know that they're saved. And all can be on the road of perfect love. You see, when the Holy Spirit speaks, we have no option but to listen. So let me share with you how the Holy Spirit spoke to me and moved me to see a bigger in crowd than I'd seen before. We were running Alpha, that course which we've been running here for years for those exploring the faith. And one of the people on this particular Alpha course was in a gay partnership. He'd come to church for a special event, but he'd been touched by the worship and by the preaching, and he wanted to know more. Now, for many years, I've been well known in the National Methodist Church as an advocate of marriage as the right place for sexual relationships, and that marriage should be between a man and a woman, and that's a position I still hold. But on the Alpha course, there's a particular night when everyone has the opportunity to be prayed for. And we went round the circle laying hands on everyone and praying for them. And some felt a blessing and not much else. And others had a very deep experience of the Holy Spirit. Some of them speaking in tongues as we prayed with them. And to my utter amazement, this man had that deep experience. The Holy Spirit came upon him in a most powerful way. What a shock for me. How inconvenient for me. I have placed this man in God's out crowd because of his lifestyle. But God had said to me that he couldn't really be bothered about who was in my out crowd or my in crowd. This man was in his in crowd. And for me that was a start of an ongoing exploration of what it means for us as Methodists to say all are welcome. 
For I realized I'd not really meant it. I'd meant a certain sort of person was welcome. And it took God to show me that all are welcome in his kingdom. Now, of course, I should have seen it before. Of course I should have seen it before. Because where did Jesus go? Jesus didn't go to the respectable. He went to the broken. He didn't go to those at the center of the establishment. He went to those on the margins. He didn't go to the religious. He went to those excluded by religion. To those in the out crowd of his day. So this word of God speaks to our heart and challenges our preconceptions. Now perhaps what I've said this morning disturbs some of you. Makes you angry even. I never preach a comfortable message to please a congregation. But I do ask you to look at this passage, to read it carefully again. And to ask yourself as you read it, how it might apply today. Who is in the out crowd in your thinking and your actions? Who is in the out crowd of this church? And does God perhaps have a rather smaller out crowd and a rather larger in crowd than yours or mine let's pray